Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. Carry on my wayward son and continue listening to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank Kansas for writing that song that I don't even like about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. I'm John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a wicked good and a raw bone podcast. Before I get rolling, this is episode number 199. Next week is episode 200. If you have any questions you'd like to ask or have us discuss, join our Facebook group. Just put in Stick to Wrestling in the search engine and it'll come right up and we will welcome you. I also want to invite you to follow me on Twitter. Just put in the words John McAdam and follow the guy who has the Stick to Wrestling avatar. I also want to thank Richard Conroy for his generous contribution to the show. If you'd like to contribute to Stick to Wrestling, go to PayPal and contribute to the email address prowrestlingarchives at gmail.com. That's all one word, prowrestlingarchives. Now, WrestleMania month is over. And we've done four recap shows in a row. We're going to make it five this time. Bear with me because. It is the 25th anniversary this month of the historic ECW (laughs) Barely Legal. I almost said Hardcore Heaven. I don't know why. I've watched Barely Legal like three times over the past week, and I should know the name of the show. But 25th anniversary coming up, and I want to introduce a new guest making his maiden voyage on the Stitch Wrestling Podcast, Dr. Nicholas Coliatis. Welcome to the show, sir, and thanks for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it, and I'm very much looking forward to this. All right. Yeah, it was a big, historic show. It got delayed, and it was something we were all really looking forward to. I've got a lot to say about ECW in general. I thought they did a great job building up this show. The television episodes beforehand were excellent. You can tell Paulie Dangerously's fingerprints were all over everyone's interviews, which is a good thing because he knows what to say. The pay-per-view opens up, and of course, something goes wrong. The mic isn't working properly. We can't really hear Joey Styles, Nicholas. Yeah, no, we can't. No, we can't, which is a shame because I love Joey Styles. I think he was the perfect guy to do the commentary for that show. I thought he was a great commentator in general, and I thought he did a really good job on this night. And I am someone who... I am not a big fan of one person behind the microphone because he's kind of just talking to himself, but Joey really carried the ball in ECW and I'm surprised he didn't do more after ECW folded. I thought the WWF absolutely could have used him. Well, he did knock out JBL, so he did do something after that, but, (laughs) um, but yeah, no, I hear you on that. You know, I think part of what made it, it great to have a one person commentary team though, was it was something different. I would look at it in reverse. If you had a three-person commentary booth and they have headsets and notes in front of them and all of a sudden it kind of starts to look like the other two shows. So in a way, I think it kind of gave them like a renegade appeal to it. I I always felt like Joey Styles was kind of like your reporter on the scene, kind of just walking you through all this crazy stuff you were about to see. So I actually thought it kind of worked to their advantage in a way. You know, I don't like three-man booths in any sport because it's almost like, you know, there's just too much. Everyone's trying to get too much in and another thing too i mean it, it's easier to just have one person in paulie's parents basement doing the commentary after the fact than trying to get two people to, to get in at the same time i agree all right one thing i noticed about this show when it opens up they have the hard cam and the crowd is going nuts chanting ecw ecw And I look, and there is nothing, and I mean nothing but white dudes. I mean, no women, no families. I finally saw one girl on the hard cam, like two or three matches into it, and then there were some girls front row. I was like, this is just the, this is like Revenge of the Nerds party here. It was definitely like that. And, you know, my my wife saw me watching some of this, and she looked, she's like, what in the hell are you watching? So I was like, yeah. She probably would have uh, not wanted to come to the show either. I'd have been there, though. I, I, You know what? One thing I really regret is never having been to an ECW show at all. But at the ECW arena, it had a very unique atmosphere. And like I said, that's that's never going to be repeated. One thing I noticed, too, looking at the show, 
football jerseys were so in in the late 90s. Like one of every five people like have an NFL jersey with a player's name on it. Yeah, I noticed that as well. I definitely noticed that. I, I loved how they opened the show with like a cold open, though. It wasn't you were just kind of thrown into it. And I, I kind yeah. of think that's the way to go. I agree. And you know what? I didn't even think about that. But you're right. They had like, you know, a brief little clip of music and then they went right to the show. No clips, no intros. Just here we are. Exactly. Exactly. I also thought it was smart to open with the Dudleys because I think you need to open with something that the fans are either going to just cheer or boo. You need something they feel strongly about. And I mean, the Dudleys brought the heat for sure. I thought that was a very smart way to open the show. I will tell you that I am not a big fan of the Dudleys at all. Bubba Ray might be my least favorite wrestler of all time. That said, (laughs) you're right. I mean, the Dudleys were the hot heel tag team act. They were the tag team champions, and they definitely got heat in that building. But you know what? And this isn't me knocking the Dudleys. I think the fans there were all big ECW fans, and every person in that building wanted to help, and they wanted to react the right way and get the right uh, what's the word i'm looking for get the right have the right atmosphere out there for their home team's pay-per-view yeah that makes sense that makes perfect sense and uh you know actually what i thought was really cool about this as well is you know for for a group of people that were renegades and did things differently and you know it was extreme and different and unique the way that devon got heat he called the fans inbred, illiterate pieces of garbage. <laughs> and you could put that anywhere. That could work in a WWF show. That could work on a, a Smoky Mountain show. I mean, hey, I can read and I'm not trash. Piss off, Yvonne. You know, <laughs> that's going to get heat anywhere you go. It, it is. And like I said, I, I thought the fans were a big part of the show and a very positive part of the show. We opened up with the Eliminators regaining the ECW tag team titles from the Dudleys. At this point in the game, I thought the Eliminators were the best tag team in the world, and that includes Japan and Mexico. Yeah, I thought they were fantastic. And you know what I liked about them is they were very much a tag team. They were very much a true tag team. They did a lot of cool double team moves. They worked together a lot. It didn't seem like two guys that were just kind of thrown together, which unfortunately nowadays you tend to see a lot of that where, you know, it just doesn't even make sense for these two guys to be teaming. You know, this wasn't Kane and X-Pac, you know. These guys actually were a team. That That's actually a good point. And it felt like they a lot of the teams that get thrown together, it's like they don't want to be part of a tag team. It's like, okay, this is the next step up in the ladder towards the top of the, of the ladder. The Eliminators, you're right. They seemed like, okay, this is who we are. We're the Eliminators, and we're going to be the best tag team in the world. Yes, and John Cronus in particular, what I really thought was was interesting about him is if you never saw him wrestle, and you just saw an 8x10 promotional photo of the guy. Like, if I'm looking at that, I'm kind of like grafting Road Warrior Animals moveset onto him. It's like, okay, this guy looks like, probably throws a lot of flying shoulder tackles, some clotheslines, a couple power slams. No, this guy is agile, and he does not look like he should be. But if you look at, like, that 450 splash he hits in that match, I mean, that was gorgeous. That looked like something you'd see out of a luchador. And this guy wasn't that. I mean, this guy was, they built him, I think, at 265. You never know what their true weights are, but he's a big guy to be moving around like that. I mean, if he's 230, 235, I mean, that's a a big guy walking down the street. I'm nowhere near that, and I can't do any of that stuff. So, yeah, (laughs) that impressed me. Now, one more thing we have in common. What did you think of the match as a whole? I thought it was great. It was, was you know, and I watched the show twice, and I kind of noticed the first time, man, the Dudleys didn't get much offense in. The second time I watched it, no, it was a squash match. Very much so. And I did read afterwards that I think Bubba Ray injured his ankle or something to that effect. So Broke his I ankle. Know, broke his ankle. I don't know if they called an audible. I don't know if that played into it. But, I mean, that was a very one-sided match. You know, it was, it was kind of almost a showcase for the Eliminators. It really was just a showcase for the Eliminators, which surprised me. I liked the match, and I was always very impressed with the athleticism of both of the Eliminators, like you had alluded to. The only thing was, at times, it looked to me like we were watching synchronized swimming. Like, when they both, you know, do the stereo dives and stuff, to me, it didn't look like anything near a real fight. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm of the mindset that wrestling always works at its best when it 
somewhat resembles an actual fight. You know, I realize there's going to be some concessions you have to make, you know. I mean, if somebody throws you into the ropes, you're going to grab onto them. You're not going to run right back into a beating. I get that. That being said, though, yeah, I kind of caught that, too. There were a couple times where it did look <laughs> synchronized swimming did kind of go through my head. So the other thing I did want to mention real quick is the very end of that match. Watch that again and watch Joel Gertner's face right before he takes that total elimination. You can kind of see the wheels turning like, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have got myself into this. But he took it like a champ and uh, looked like a million bucks. I love that move, and you're right, Joel looked very nervous right before he took that move, and they didn't exactly take it easy on him. Joel went down hard. No, yeah, they definitely didn't. They definitely didn't take it easy on him. Well, he was a trooper, and we Joel's a good guy. Anyway, Joel's so big, it's Hurtner, Gertner. All right, second match, Rob Van Dam pins Lance Storm. It was originally supposed to be Chris Candido against Lance Storm, but Chris uh, pulled a, I, I think he tore a peck in his left arm, and Rob Van Dam gets to the spot, and supposedly Rob Van Dam wasn't very happy about it. Uh, he kind of got, he felt like he was being left off the pay-per-view. He actually was going to have a major role in it, as we eventually found out, but I mean, my understanding was at coming in, Rob was not a very happy camper. And I think I've heard Lance Storm mention that before on his website. I know Rob Van Dam's mentioned it. And uh, and we can talk about this a little bit later because I think there's a question regarding this. But Paul Heyman's mentioned it as well. So, yeah, it, it definitely wasn't a work. Van Dam seemed pretty fired up. But you know what? That promo he cut afterwards, that came from the heart. You can kind of tell. Yeah, and those are where the best promos come from, not, you know, a bunch of writers. It's, you know, Rob was – and Chris Candido did the same thing. He's like, hey, you know, I was on the first show here in 1990. 19- 93, and I was looking forward to being on the pay-per-view, and this sucks. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I thought this match was, uh, in much in the same way that the previous match was a showcase for the Eliminators, this was very much a showcase for Rob Van Dam. I mean, you kind of saw a little bit of everything out of him. I think this was the first Rob Van Dam match I had ever seen. And so that was the first time I saw the Van Daminator. And, I mean... You know, as a kid that grew up on the WWF, when you see this stuff, it just blows your mind. You know, these are things in wrestling that you never thought were possible. I am not always right about guys who I think could have been uh, or would have been a future star. Like we we had discussed on the Facebook page, like there was a guy. Oh, what was his name? I can't even remember his name. He teamed with John Paul. He was in Memphis. And I was recently watching some old Memphis. And I'm like, wow, why didn't why wasn't this guy? A bigger star. I mean, I could see him at least being in the mid card in WCW, and that never happened for him. Uh, Rob Van Dam was a guy when I saw him in Memphis. I'm like, okay, this guy should have a future in the business. And for once, I was right. He was a big deal in ECW, and he was a big deal in the WWF. They actually kind of held him down in the WWF, I thought, in 2001 and 2002. Well, you know, you always read the backstage stuff, and I think he got the knock on him that he wasn't a good promo, which is completely ridiculous. I know he said in the past they always wanted him to yell. They wanted him to scream and yell and bug his eyes out and stare at the camera and let me tell you something. You know, the same thing everyone else does, but that's not him. You know, what made him unique was that he can cut that cocky, you know, heel promo, but he does it in his own way. And nobody else cuts a promo like that, and that's what makes him unique. Along with his moveset, along with his look, his appearance, his attire, everything else about him was unique. The more you try to cram that, you know, square peg into a round hole, the worse off you're going to be, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. I mean, the WWF locker room in 2001, the attitude is, oh, you know, here, here we are. We've been fighting again. You know, this guy's our enemy, which he wasn't. Now he's on their team. That makes no sense. But that goes on in pro wrestling. You know, everyone thinks they should be getting the push and not Rob Van Dam. And the, the talk was that, yeah, he can't do an interview and he can't work WWF style. Well, you adapt to his strengths, in my opinion. Exactly. And, you know, in terms of in ECW, if you were to ask me, like, who from that promotion could have been a star anywhere, Rob Van Dam is the, the clear-cut choice for me. I mean, he had everything. He had athletic ability. I mean, he could sell. He, he had charisma. He had a great look. He was unique. I thought his promos were great. That whole cocky stoner character, you know, that was that was different. That was something different in wrestling. And and I know currently Vince is trying to do that with, with Riddle, but it just comes off as contrived and, 
and just fake. You know, it, it comes off as not not genuine. I agree. I totally agree. They they are doing that with Riddle, and it's almost like okay, you're going to be you, except you're not. And while we're talking about Landstorm, I have a Landstorm story. In 1995, I was was it 94? It was 94. I'm in Knoxville, and I'm in a sporting goods store. I forget, I forget what I needed, but I just look up, and I see Lance Storm. And I'm like, oh, wow, Chris, how you doing? Nice to meet you. And he goes, I'm Lance. And that was kind of the end of the conversation. I blew it. <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah, you know, he's, as far as Lance Storm goes, you know, I think if you could take Lance Storm and the Sandman, you'd have the perfect wrestler because you'd have everything. You know, Lance Storm I thought was great in the ring. I thought outside the ring he was pretty dry, um, whereas the Sandman, and we'll talk about him later, but I felt like he was kind of the opposite. You know, he, he was great at everything that wasn't wrestling. <laughs> well, we'll talk about the Sandman later, but I remember the original Sandman ca- character like doing a surfboard gimmick. Like He would come out in a surfing outfit with a surfboard, and just to think about what he eventually turned into is kind of wild. All right, next up we have... The six-man tag team match from Michinoku Pro, the great Sasuke, El Gran Hamada, Masato Yakasushi, defeats Men's Toe, Dick Togo, and Taka Michinoko. This was an excellent match. It felt like I was watching something on a VHS tape with the fast-forward button going. Like, these guys were nonstop. You know, and I think it's great to have one match like that on the card. I don't want to see a card that's completely that. Because then at that point, you're watching a movie that's just a two-hour car chase. You know what I mean? But to put that right where they put it, I thought was perfect. And I don't mean this to sound disparaging about any of those guys, but they, they knew their role on the card. They knew what their place was. Their place was to get the crowd excited in the middle of the show. And I think they accomplished that with flying colors. Uh, I thought they were very successful in that. And the crowd got with it, too. Because at the beginning, you can kind of look around, and maybe they didn't know who all these guys were. you know. But by the end of it, I mean, they were with it. Yeah, I think the crowd, and once again, I I'm, I'm want to be complimentary, they wanted to put over the fact that, hey, we appreciate you guys flying from more than halfway around the world, coming here and having what I thought was like a four, four and a half star match. It was really good. I'd forgotten how good it was. The one problem with this match, and there's really nothing you can do about it, is it's six guys where, and Joey Styles really tried to get them over as far as like not just being, you know, faceless guys from Japan, but that's kind of at the end of the day, what they were like. One thing I like about wrestling and I miss about wrestling. I miss about caring about who wins. Like I cared about who won the main event. I was interested to see what happened this match. Like I, you know, I, I appreciated the great work these guys did and, and then, you know, once again, flying in from where they flew in from, but I didn't care who won. I love the match. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, I did as well, and um, you know, one thing I forgot was how over the, the Blue World Order was. You know, I kind of remembered him as kind of like the silly, the silly comedy act type thing, and it was. But, I mean, look at the crowd reactions to it. I mean, they, the crowd was into it, you know? It wasn't just some silly one-off kind of thing. And the other thing I'll say is I think a great litmus test for a match is you should be able to go in cold, not know who anybody is, not know anything about them, not know any kind of backstory. And even, I would go so far as to say, hit the mute on the commentary, and within a few minutes, you should know who the faces are and who the heels are. And I felt like these guys did that. My favorite spot in the match wasn't even a move. There was one spot where the, all three of the BWO guys, they posed with, uh, I think it was Grand Hamada. You had Taka and you had uh, Terry Boy. They're both kind of propping him up. And then Dick Togo climbs on his back and does the pose. And you're watching that, and it's like, oh. You assholes. You know, but what a great heel move that is. I, it I really was. was. I'd forgotten about that. And the other thing was Taka. He had a swagger about him that I never saw that in the WWF. You know, it was just a, it was kind of weird seeing that version of Taka. He had a little bit of a swagger to him. I'll tell you, when the WWF signed Taka, they made a big deal about it. And there were people who were, you know, there were people who had connections in the WWF who were telling me that, you know, no. They're going to push this guy. And I had no problem saying today they're saying they're going to push him. It's not in Vince McMahon's blood to push a guy like that. And of course, you know, six months later, he was an afterthought. And let me ask you, when you first saw Taka in WWF, who was the first guy that kind of came to mind for you that you thought they would try to make him into? Sayama. 
the original see, Tiger was, Mask. See, I was thinking Rey Mysterio. I thought, okay, this is going to be their Rey Mysterio, their smaller guy that can have some exciting matches and do some amazing aerial maneuvers. And they kind of never did anything with him, really. He was an afterthought pretty quickly. The only thing I remember about him was getting thrown out of that Royal Rumble match where he lands on his face. They showed that like uh, <laughs> they showed that like three or four times in a row on the the Titantron. But that's about all I remember from talking WWF. They didn't do much with him. No, I like I said, I remember them making a big deal about the signing, and I'm like, okay, well that's a good start. But I have the feeling Vince is going to change his mind quickly, and he did. You were talking about Stevie Richards. I think right after this match, they did an interview with Stevie Richards where he's staring into the, the mirror and talking about how he's been a loser all his life and he was picked last to play kickball and he couldn't get a date for the prom. And I loved that interview. You don't see that kind of a, a humble baby face interview like that. And he talked about how, you know, he's broken off from Raven and how Raven used to use him. I thought he did a really good job. And coming out of this, I, I never thought Stevie Richards was big enough physically to be pushed in the WWF or WCW. I mean, he was in great shape for the show and he was as big as I'd ever seen him, but I was like, okay, and this is about as big as he can get, but maybe he can be like the superstar of ECW. You know, I love that promo too. And one thing I noticed, and I don't know how it escaped me the first time I watched it, because I watched the show twice uh, in prepare, preparing for this. The second time around, watch that promo again. It starts in black and white as he's talking about, you know, I was a loser, couldn't get a date for the prom. I think he said he went to the movies by himself. You know, he, he definitely laid it on pretty thick. But then at the end of it, you know, he kind of, as he's talking about, you know, what he's going to do and he's going to get some respect, it goes to color. I thought that was really interesting. It was kind of like a, a Wizard of Oz type effect. He starts out black and white and then he's kind of reborn. And the, the promo just slowly goes into color. I thought that was a very um, great way to do it. I just thought it was uh, it added a lot to the promo. And I didn't notice it the first time around, but I noticed it the second time. No, I, I noticed it the first time. And it's like Stevie starts by talking about, you know, what a loser he thought he was when he was a kid. And then he starts to brighten up and talk about getting away from Raven. And to now he's going to win the three way and win the ch championship. And by the time he's done, we are in full color. It was a really good effect. And not to beat this into the dirt, but the other thing I liked, the, the final thing I really liked about that promo was. If you listen to what he's saying, he wants respect. He wants to be able to look at himself in the mirror. It's kind of feathering the nest for him when he loses, because eventually he does lose. He doesn't win that match. But, you know, he comes out ahead because he made a respectable showing for himself. So I, I felt like that promo accomplished. I feel like a good promo should accomplish what it sets out to do, and I feel like that promo did it. I agree totally, and Blue Meanie made a, a valuable cameo at the end of that, and I thought, I thought the whole thing was really well done. Good for them. Next up, moving from a match that I thought was at least four stars, we have Shane Douglas pinning Pitbull number two in a match. I watched the show twice, just like you did, Nicholas, except I didn't watch this match twice. This match, I get what they were trying to do. They were trying to tell a story, but it, the match just wasn't very good. Uh, Pitbull number two just isn't that good in the ring. He doesn't have over 20 minutes in him, and I think they kind of should have known that coming in. Well, in the words of the late, great Meatloaf, you took the words right out of my mouth. That's exactly what I thought. So I thought this was a bad match, for sure. I thought it was the only really bad match on the card, but I don't think the whole thing was bad. I think it was very uneven. I, I think it started out strong because you had a great backstory. You had a hot angle. Shane Douglas had some serious heat, and I really, really liked the psychology at the beginning where they were both trying to break each other's necks. Uh, you know, you had Shane Douglas hitting, I think he hit like three or four pile drivers. You had Pitbull hitting that front chancery where he was just basically lifting Douglas off the ground. I mean, that was a great visual. But yeah, that match should have been well, well under what it was. I mean, that's a eight-minute match maybe. And yeah, it just went on forever. And to me, it looked like Pitbull too gassed out pretty quick. Oh, yeah. Certainly by the end, he was totally out of gas. Shane Douglas, a very controversial wrestler in the 90s. I've mentioned this on the show. I got on his bandwagon very early when I saw him in uh, uh, Southeast Championship Wrestling in 1988. I'm like, whoa, this guy might have a future. And then they make him into a dynamic dude, and he has his problems with Ric Flair. And I, I thought Shane 
was, I mean, he, like I said, he's very polarizing. He did an interview the week before that was like a five-star interview. It was fantastic. And he and Francine bounced off of each other perfectly. I think Shane, if he had just kept his interviews a little bit shorter in general, I think he would he would have gone down as one of the best interviews of all time. Instead, he chose to sometimes or very often overdo it. Yeah, I completely agree. And a lot of times less is more. And uh, yeah, he, he definitely, he, his interviews went way longer than he, they needed to, for sure. And you know, the way you can tell that, I think Pitbull too, I think he immediately kind of knew that he didn't put in a good performance because as soon as the match was done, he kind of just immediately rolls out of the ring and he's gone. You, know, you don't see him again. That's it. He's, he's out of there. Like, I, I think he kind of knew that he, uh, he dropped the ball. Someone mentioned on our Facebook group, uh, we took some questions on the show, which we'll be getting to, uh, that supposedly he was an absolute nervous wreck before the show. And I mean, like way beyond like, you know, just butterflies. Supposedly, I I'd never heard this before, but after watching the match, it makes sense. I mean, maybe that's what happened to him. Well, not only that, if you've ever competed in a sport where you're really, really nervous and you'll gas out quickly. I mean, that doesn't just take a toll on you mentally to where you're lost out there. It'll actually take a toll on you physically as well. You know, I watch a lot of MMA and boxing as well, and I, I can tell you, I don't know how many fights I've seen. There's one in particular I'm thinking of with, uh, and not to get too lost in the weeds here, but the fight was Conor McGregor versus a guy named Chad Mendez. And if you watch that fight and you watch the weigh-in, Conor McGregor just looked like he was just confident. He looked like he just got out of the shower. I mean, there wasn't, he didn't have a bit of worry on him. And Chad Mendez already looked like he lost that fight. And sure enough, he gassed out very, very quickly in the fight. And in the second round, the first round, he made a good showing. And in the second round, he was done. And you could see it the minute he walked out of his corner. He was done. Gassed out. And from a guy that generally comes in there in very good shape. So, you know, the mental aspect can very much lead to the physical as well. Absolutely. If I'm, I'm speaking to the stick to wrestling universe when I say this, it's free on YouTube. If you have not watched the movie Pumping Iron with Arnold Schwarzenegger, you absolutely should, because Arnold Schwarzenegger was doing a bodybuilding competition, and the whole film was pretty much about him psyching out all of his competition, including and especially Lou Ferrigno. And Arnold just owned these guys. He was arrogant, but not too arrogant to the point where he was trying. He was just like, yeah, I'm here. I'm going to win this thing. You know what's interesting about that movie is when they first directed it, Lou Ferrigno was supposed to be the heel. The whole you know, concept of it was we're going to make this Lou Ferrigno guy, this, you know, dark character in the shadows training in this dirty gym that's, you know, coming after Arnold. But he comes off as such a sympathetic character because when you look at him, you see him training with his dad. And you could tell his dad just is just pushing him and just riding him real hard. And you can see it, you know. So I think there was some of that with Lou Ferrigno. I, I think he psyched himself out. Yeah, I totally agree. And of course, Arnold won. I don't think that's exactly a spoiler. This happened like 50 years ago. But yeah, I do recommend the movie and just, you know, the the whole psychological aspect of it, which, you know, gets back to Pitbull number two. You're right. He, you know, the, the guy gets himself too psyched out and he puts on a poor performance. Exactly. Exactly. Uh -uh. One more thing about the match real quick. Sure. Did anybody in that crowd think that that was Rick Rude with the mask and the robe? Because oh, Rick Rude has got like a 28-inch waist. You can spot, even with a robe and a mask, you can spot that guy from the cheap seats. I'm looking at that, and I couldn't exactly remember what happened in the post-match, but I'm like, okay, that's not Rick Rude. I know that much. No, I, it, I, mean, I, could, I could tell watching it 25 years ago. I'm like, okay, that's not Rick Rude. And I figured out that Rick Rude was probably... Well, one of the guys in Riot Gear, and what a surprise he was. All right, we go now to the big match. And this was probably, in reality, the main event. Taz versus Sabu, and just the magic of ECW. I mean, here are two guys who, you know, a year ago, two years ago, wouldn't even get a sniff from the WWF or WCW. I think Taz got a tryout match with the WWF, which, you know, obviously didn't turn out too well. But here are two guys that the major promotions were not interested in. And Paulie Dangerously literally turns it into a dream match. And the guy knew what he was doing, despite whatever faults Paulie might have. On this night, the year before, I mean, the guy was a wrestling genius. 
Absolutely. This was my favorite match on the card by a mile. And it's everything I love about wrestling because it's a, a showdown between two guys that the promotion built and built and built, and then eventually they're going to face each other. And if you look at wrestling, when it's done right, that's generally what it is. You know, whether it's Hogan Andre, whether it's Brett and Sean, whether it's Austin and The Rock, or whether it's Sabu and Taz. And I, I just think that is what wrestling is all about. I think this is the best match in the show, and I don't think there's a close second. I actually thought the six-man was the best match on the show, but this one came close. And coming in, I was a little bit worried about a style clash because Taz wrestles his match and Sabu wrestles his match, and both of them kind of had egos, and no, everything was put aside. It was a really good match. Both guys got their stuff in, and Sabu loses clean. I mean, Taz choked him out, and and. Sabu put his ego aside, his, I got uh, to go to Japan, and I can't go back there having a loss on my shoulders. You know what, though? I think the right guy went over. Because if you look at the essence of their character, who was Taz? Taz was basically built as this unstoppable, unbeatable, badass shoot fighter. So he, he kind of needs to win. Whereas Sabu, it was more how much punishment this guy can take, what he's willing to put himself through. This guy is crazy. You know, he retained all that. I don't think he lost that much with a loss. And it wasn't a one-sided beating by any stretch, you know. Uh, actually, Sabu cribbed a couple of his moves at the end. You know, he, he uh, reversed that Tazplex. He hit him with a suplex. He, uh, he went for the uh, the Jame. I guess I said that right. He went for yeah. that. Yeah, well, thank you. But yeah, so I think the right guy won that match. And I really don't think Sabu... Much like Mick Foley, I don't think he lost a lot by not winning. No, he he didn't. And again, you know, coming into this, I was telling everyone who would listen, okay? I was, you know, not really on the phone that much, but I was on AOL, remember them? And, you know, people would would talk to me about, oh, I hear this is going to happen. I hear that's going to happen. I would tell people, look, something big is going to happen on this car. There's going to be a big surprise, but don't listen to the rumors because Paulie. He knows better. I wouldn't be surprised if only he and the people at Request TV knew what were going to happen until the day of the match. I mean, Paul knows better. I was like, you know, if you hear anything, it's probably a red herring. And one thing I did not hear is that they were going to do a double turn with Sabu and Taz, and it was as well done as could be. I mean, Taz wins clean. He congratulates Sabu. You gave me the fight of your life. Rob Van Dam comes out and attacks Taz. Oh, and and uh, Sabu t- and Taz shake hands. They hug, and then Rob Van Dam is the instigator. And suddenly, Sabu is the heel. Something I didn't think we would ever see. And not only that, what I thought was equally impressive was they were able to get sympathy on Taz, and that's a hard character to get sympathy on. You know, I mean, he, you know, when you build someone as this unstoppable you know, badass, it's very hard to get sympathy on a character like that. But I found myself feeling bad for Taz. You know, he won the fight. He was willing to be the bigger man and shake Sabu's hand. You know, they embrace for a minute, and then Bill Alfonso just turns on him. And, man, what an obnoxious, off-putting, weaselly little twerp he was. Uh, I thought Bill Alfonso was just fantastic. He was, and I have been, I've never been Bill Alfonso, but I have been told that pretty much that's, that's who Bill Alfonso is in real life. One thing I want to talk about with Taz, about a year, maybe a year and a half before this event, was Joey Styles is doing commentary on a regular ECW show, and he brings out a guy named Pete Cernerka to do commentary with him. And Cernerka's just talking. He's a regular guy doing a good job. And then they turn the camera on him, and he's like, oh, Peter Cernerka, we know you best as the Tasmaniac. And suddenly the Tasmaniac is no longer the Tasmaniac. He's this guy from Brooklyn who is a legit shoot fighter. You know, I always felt like Taz is exactly what they should have booked Ken Shamrock in, in WWF. The way they booked Taz. I felt like that's how they should have booked Shamrock. And instead, they kind of made Shamrock just another guy. Yeah, I mean, I I talked about it on the show, like, about a month ago. Like, there was some disagreement between Shamrock and the booking committee, and they wound up, you know, Oh, we suddenly have nothing for you, Ken. But yeah, I thought when the WWF hired Shamrock, I'm like, okay, this guy could be like, I thought he could have been what The Rock was, but it didn't happen for it for whatever reason. They started out strong with Shamrock, I thought when, you know, and I, I just think very, very quickly, 
he went from being something special to just being another guy. And what's impressive is that Taz, I mean, I know he's got some legit background in judo, and I think he was, he's got some background in wrestling, but he's not Kurt Angle, you know, he, he's not, he's not Brock Lesnar, he's not Luthez, but Paul E. and Taz were able to make those fans think that he was the toughest guy in that locker room. Yeah, well played. and w- when they when they turned him heel, I mean, they spent a year feeding the entire promotion to the guy. I mean, everyone had to tap out. Almost everyone had to tap out to Taz. And it's like, okay, here's the payoff. Now we fed the guy the whole promotion. Now he's our top baby face, and he's going to make big money for us. And now coming out of the show, we're like, okay, what's next for Taz? Obviously, the feud with Sabu, the feud with Rob Van Dam, but we're all like, hey, pretty soon we're going to get to see Taz versus Shane Douglas. Yes, and and one more thing I wanted to mention real quick about Taz. I loved that go-home line in his pre-match promo where he says, Sabu, if I was you, I wouldn't be. And I thought about that. At first, I'm like, that doesn't make any kind of sense. You know, and I thought about it for a minute. I'm like, no, it actually makes perfect sense. He's basically saying, you screwed up. You should have never got yourself into this situation, and now I'm ending you. I thought that was a great go-home line in that promo. It was a great promo all around. Uh, he starts off with a towel on his head. You can only see his mouth. And at the end, he takes off the towel, and he says, like, I have to win. I have to win this match. And I'll, I'll tell you, I bought the pay-per-view. I was always planning on buying the pay-per-view. But if I was on the fence, I would be seeing that promo on Friday night and saying, you know what? I'm going to spend the money for this on Sunday. I mean, that's how you sell a fight, you know, whether it's a wrestling match, a boxing match. A, if somebody used that in a, in a boxing fight or an MMA fight, I, that would get me to buy the pay-per-view. It's just a great line. It's a great promo. And it gives it an air of legitimacy. You know, it makes it seem, again, like an actual fight between two people that the promotion built. And I think that's where wrestling's at its best. I agree, and I'm sorry that we have kind of lost. WWE hasn't been that way in a long, long time, and uh, I, I, I wish things were different. But anyway, I don't even hate WWE. By the way, this show comes out like the day before WrestleMania. I hope everyone has a great WrestleMania weekend. I will be watching WrestleMania. So there you go. Next up, we have the three-way match. The Sandman versus Terry Funk versus Stevie Richards. One, it was a good match, but parts of it were cringeworthy in terms of the bumps these guys were taking. I mean, Terry Funk got hit like 100% with a ladder, or it was a real ladder. It was like, oh my God, these guys are, you know, this is too much. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I agree with you on that. At some point, it's uncomfortable seeing a 53-year-old man, even if it is Terry Funk, you know, getting beaten to a pulp, you know. Um, and some of that is just the hits he was taking. And some of it was just Terry Funk selling, you know? I mean, maybe he wasn't the best athlete on the card. Maybe he was past his prime. But there's no one on that card that can sell like Terry Funk. No, Terry Funk, I'll I'll say this. I mean, I remember 1989, Terry Funk was, I mean, he was, he got to his, what turned out to be, well, not to be his retirement match at the Clash of the Champions. And Terry was, I mean, he was crawling to the finish line. He was having back problems. He had that infection in his arm. His knees were going out. And the promotion just kind of almost mercifully put him into retirement and into a color commentary spot. And here, if someone had told me, yeah, by the way, eight years from now, in 1997, Terry Funk's going to be headlining a pay-per-view against Scotty the Body in this company that hasn't been formed yet i mean i would not have believed you and i wouldn't believe that terry funk was giving so much in the ring at at his age again seven years after 1989 eight years you know you know and i think paul Heyman probably thought exactly the same way you did and as a result he didn't present him like that he didn't present him as okay here's terry funk and he's winning the title it was you know the one thing that ecw was great at doing is they never i don't they didn't insult the fans' intelligence. You know, anybody with two working retinas can see, okay, he's, he's older, he's broken down, he, he's not quite what he used to be, he's moving a little bit slower. They acknowledge all that. You know, it's 53-year-old Terry Funk, he's middle-aged and crazy, and he doesn't know how to quit, and he wants one more shot at glory. You know, that's how you present him. And I think if they would have presented him just as, okay, here's Terry Funk, I don't think the fans would have taken to it. But because they didn't insult the fans' intelligence, and they presented him the way they, they did, 
I actually think what could have been seen as a, you know, you always hear Paul Heyman, he can mask the weaknesses and accentuate the strengths. But I think in this case, he actually turned the weakness into a strength. The fact that it was a 53-year-old broken down man, you know, it, it got him a lot of sympathy. It got him a lot of cheers. It got him a lot of, you know, I think a lot of people can, can see that and maybe look, okay, you know, maybe in my own life, there's something that, you know, I've been told I'm too old to try or what have you. You know, I think in presenting them that way, I actually think you turn that weakness into a strength. I agree completely. I mean, Paulie loved Terry Funk and he always protected him. And Terry walked out of the, of the promotion at one point, I want to say like six or seven months earlier. And Paulie did not bury him. He just waited for Terry to calm down. And, and here he is uh, in, the, in the, what turned into the main event. There were some moments in this match where I absolutely cringed because of the brutality of it. But at the end of the day, it was a really good match. Yes. And I think you can look at this match in one of two ways. I think you can look at it. You can either nitpick it to death and maybe give it the Mystery Science Theater 3000 treatment where you're just kind of, okay, yeah, that spot didn't work. Oh, Big Dick Doug, Dudley just kind of tossed himself through the table there. Oh, where the hell? Why is the Sandman putzing around with that garbage can for five minutes, you know? Um, you can look at it that way, or you can look at it like, what story were they trying to tell? Did they accomplish what they were trying to tell? And the answer is a resounding yes. I mean, and you could tell from the crowd. I don't think anybody went home in their car that night and said, well, you know, that, that choke slam really didn't look all that good. I think they were excited that Terry Funk won the title. I think they told the story they set out to tell, and I think they did it masterfully. Yep, Terry Funk won the three-way and, as a result, got a chance to wrestle Raven for the ECW world title, and they kept emphasizing in commentary. Uh, Tommy Dreamer did commentary, and for the most part, I didn't think he did a very good job, but they kept beating home the fact that after this incredibly brutal match, a fresh Raven gets to wrestle this, you know, beat-up, bloody Terry Funk. And, of course, Raven, who is a great heel, doesn't wait a second. He runs right to the ring after Funk wins and starts pounding on him. And Terry was covered in blood. It was it was a sight to be seen. I mean, he was a raven. He came out there picking the bones of uh, the winner of the match, which nice. that's a great way to cement him as a heel, man. That is a great way to cement him as a heel. You know the other thing I like, and I, I want to make sure I get to this, the pre-match promo from Raven that he gave earlier. I like the fact that he acknowledges that there's about 10% of the fans that actually like me, and that's who I'm doing this for. The other 90% of you can go to hell. And I really like that because, again, you're not insulting the fans' intelligence. You know, you could pretend that Raven is just this universally hated character, but there are some people there that were fans of him, and he acknowledges that. And I always feel like the best villains are the heroes of their own story, and Raven was always great at that. I always loved Scott Levy as Scotty the Body. I thought Scotty the Body, when I saw him in Portland in 1989, I'm like, okay, WCW should be on the phone right now with this guy. And it never really panned out with him being Scotty the Body. And I give him all the credit in the world. It is not easy for a guy to completely overhaul his gimmick. And he did it. Like one day he just shows up on ECW TV looking like uh, Pearl Jam's bassist. And he made the character work. And it, it was a character he pretty much came up with all by himself. And I, like I said, I give him a lot of credit for that. Well, you know, and the other thing you always hear, and you hear this time and time again at the point where it's almost a cliche, you know, the best wrestling characters are the real guy with the volume turned up to 11. And you watch Scott Levy, and I mean, if you ever see him in a shoot interview or anything, I mean, he's, he's basically a stand-up comedian. The guy is just laugh-out-loud funny. And so for him to play a character that is just completely different from what the actual guy seems to be, it kind of goes against the grain of what you usually hear, you know? Yeah, I mean, some guys, you're right. Most guys are themselves with the volume, like you said, turned up to 11. And, you know, the Raven was just completely different. And it was a great character. And um, to this day, I'm a little bit disappointed that it didn't take off on a larger stage. Uh, Nicholas, what did you think of the show overall? Overall, I thought it was fantastic. I thought it was a, a great showcase of ECW. I thought one thing they did that was brilliant, and I don't know if this was just kind of by happy accident or by design, you know, ECW, it often gets this reputation as a lot of garbage wrestling and, 
you know, kendo sticks and garbage cans and ladders and, and tables and all this and that. And there wasn't a whole lot of that up until the main event. And I thought that was a great way of doing it because if you had seen all that stuff in the previous, you know, five matches, then by the time you got to the main event, it's like, yeah, I've already seen 10 people get hit with a garbage can. This is nothing new. But they didn't do that. They, they, they reserved it all for the main event. Also, that covers for the fact that, let's just be honest here, the Sandman isn't the world's greatest wrestler. That, that helped cover for that fact. I thought overall the show was fantastic. The only bad match on there was Shane Douglas versus Pitbull 2. And even that one, you know, it, it had a lot of heat to it. I think uh, Rick Rude and Brian Lee kind of saved some of it at the end because, again, you can say what you want about the match, but look at how the crowd reacted at the end, you know. I think they forgot about the, you know, crappy match they saw for the, the previous what, 20 minutes. It went way too long. No, I, I thought, you know, anytime the letters ECW get mentioned, the first thing that comes out of someone's mouth is, oh, man, that stuff has not aged well. And I tend to agree. I mean, I would stay up on Friday nights uh, until one o'clock in the morning uh, watching ECW. And this is back when I had to get up early and be right outside of Boston at 8 a.m. So, I'm, you know, I'm pretty much putting it out there. But I, I could have recorded it and watched it the next day, but I didn't want to. I couldn't wait because I liked ECW that much. And I thought this was a fantastic show. Like I came into watching it for the first time in years, you know, with the same old, oh, ECW has an age well mentality. But the fact is this was a fantastic pay-per-view. I don't see, I, I actually, I'll come right out and say it. I don't see how anyone couldn't like it. Who's a wrestling fan. Yeah, I don't either. You know, and kind of like what you said earlier, I think uh, we were talking about this a little bit earlier. ECW, to me, if you go back and watch it, much like WrestleMania, you know, the early WrestleManias were a time capsule for the 80s, this was a time capsule into the 90s for me. You know, it, it just, when I hear ECW or when I see ECW, I think, you know, Quentin Tarantino movies, uh, Mortal Kombat, gangster rap, all that edgy stuff that came out in the 90s that was a little bit darker a little more menacing, a little different than the stuff you saw in the 80s. You know, even the opening to the show, go back and watch the opening to ECW, and it's completely different from every every other kind of wrestling program you could think of. You know, they broke all of the rules. Like, you had Stevie Richards and Blue Meanie go out and kind of make fun of the Fabulous Ones, which is something that, you know, was, was taboo in wrestling. But, you know, Paulie didn't care if it was taboo. He broke all of the rules and some... And sometimes it came out fantastically. Well, and that needed to be done, because if you look at what the other two promotions were doing, you kind of had the, the Doink the Clown era of WWF, and then in WCW you had kind of the, the Dungeon of Doom era, which, I mean, that's can't be fun, but it's not good wrestling. I certainly wouldn't want to be stuck in that era again. I mean, ECW, you know, it, to me it was at a time where where wrestling was at, I thought, a really bad point. Uh you know, WCW and WWF, like you said, they were awful. Uh, Smoky Mountain Wrestling had folded. And, you know, my, my happiest moments of the month really were when my either my Japan tapes or my ECW tape showed up. And then we finally started getting uh, ECW on Channel 27 in Boston. Like I said, midnight on Friday nights. And I was in heaven. Yeah, no, that's perfectly said. It, it had an edge to it that wrestling needed and that wrestling didn't have for quite some time. You know, and Paulie always makes this comparison. I think it's a very good one. You know, in the 80s, you had all these hair bands, and that kind of carried into the early 90s. But, you know, if you go back and you, and you watch something, you know, you had, in the 80s, you had Motley Crue, and you had some good bands. But, you know, by the early 90s, you had some pretty terrible music coming out, you know, from some of these hair bands. And all of a sudden, you know, grunge comes out and just, knocks all that stuff into the dirt. Now, I felt like ECW, and this isn't breaking new ground, but I felt it was very much like grunge music. You know, it was just a, a shot in the arm that the business needed. That is an excellent comparison because you're right. By the time like 89, 90 rolled on, those hair bands, you know, they their time had come and gone and the music business was in a slump. I mean, sales were down, concert tickets were down. And then finally, around 92, 93, this new thing came along. It, it took a little while to become mainstream, but like, you know, grunge, Nirvana, etc. You know, it revitalized the whole thing, much like ECW revitalized the wrestling business. Like Paulie saw a brand new path 
and and trailblazed it. And pretty soon, WWF and WCW were following following suit. You know, and and I don't, I'm not sure if we mentioned this word yet. More than anything else, it was cool. You know, uh, some things in wrestling are just cool. Rob Van Dam was cool. Sabu was cool. The opening to that show was cool. The music. That's the other thing too. And I think I, I think we would uh, be remiss not to mention. And, you know, we talked about, I actually watched the pay-per-view twice. The first time I saw it on Peacock, and man, some of that music they piped in is brutal. So I actually, I actually found it, uh, you know, on the internet, you know, with lower quality footage, but with Shane Douglas coming out to Perfect Strangers, you know, the Sandman. I mean, without that Enter Sandman Metallica music, it's, you know, his character's kind of castrated. So I, I thought they did a great job of incorporating music into the product in a way that other wrestling promotions just didn't. I, I agree with you. The music was a really big part of it. I'm glad you got to find something on on YouTube. I, I didn't I didn't find that, but like I said, you're right. The music was a big part of ECW. All right, let's take some questions from the Stick to Wrestling universe. Nicholas Coliatis, I know this guy. He asks, as someone who has been a long term smart fan and an insider to the wrestling business, at least compared to the rest of us. Okay, I'm glad you threw that qualifier in there. Did Terry Funk <laughs> winning the ECW title come as a surprise to you? Why or why not? Well, I don't want to use the word new. I figured out that Terry Funk, this was going to be Terry Funk's victory lap. I kind of figured that out that, look, there's really no other way to book this pay-per-view than, than without Terry Funk coming out as the world's heavyweight champion. So I kind of figured he'd win the three-way and then he'd do the heroic, you know, after taking the beating, uh, going on to beat the Raven. Like, yeah, I figured out that Terry Funk was was going to win the championship. And as I, I stated earlier, you know, I didn't believe anything I heard coming in. I didn't really hear much, to be honest with you. But that one I kind of figured out. Absolutely. You know, I never really watched ECW in real time uh, up until probably I discovered it in 98 or so. You know, I always heard about it. It was like you'd hear the name Rob Van Dam. You know, you'd hear the name Sabu. Um, and eventually, you know, I discovered around 98. And then uh, actually a friend of mine who I think got tapes from you had some ECW tapes. And uh, I watched some of that. And I got I got into it pretty quickly. I actually saw a live show uh, at Michigan State, you know, where I went to near where I went to college. And I mean, it was just a completely different experience live. So I guess it wasn't a surprise to me because I didn't know anything about it. <laughs> and by the time I saw the match, I already knew how it turned out. So <laughs> That totally makes sense. I mean, I wish ECW, you know, I wish they had made it or at least longer than they did. I guess, you know, it, it was difficult being on syndicated, getting syndicated television right when that was coming out of style. And they didn't exactly get the greatest uh, spot when they finally got national cable, but Anyway, this, these were the glory days of ECW, and in my opinion, ECW fell off a cliff after this night. I mean, I went from you know absolutely loving it, not being able to wait to see what they were going to do next, and, and maybe six, eight weeks later, I am no longer staying up until 1 a.m. to watch the show. It, it, it fell quickly. Yeah, yeah. Well, and how much of that do you think was, you know, as it became popular— you can kind of see, like, the, the big two starting to sign away these guys. You know, after a while, they sign away Saturn, Raven, the Dudleys. You know, one guy after the another after another got signed away to either Vince McMahon or Eric Bischoff. So it started to almost look like almost a feeder league for the other two. You know, you'd see a guy make it, get big, and then he was gone. And then all of a sudden, he shows up on Nitro or on Monday Night Raw. And another thing, too, like when when Taz went to the WWF, like here's a guy who was the unquestioned king of ECW. He was the, the, the top guy and he goes to the WWF and he's just not that he is a middle to bottom of the card guy. And that made ECW look bad, in my opinion. You want to hear something that'll piss you off? Sure. And this comes directly from Taz himself. He's mentioned this. His debut match with Kurt Angle. If you go back and watch that match. When he comes out and he gets that pop, I mean, that is a huge, huge pop for a guy that had never set foot in a WWF ring. And he's, he's gone on record as saying, you know, when I heard that pop, I knew my career was done. Because that was not a WWF pop. That was an ECW pop. And Vince wasn't going to have it. So that, 
comes directly from Taz himself. Perhaps the people in charge thought, nah, this guy's just too ECW for us and just cut him off at the, the kneecaps. I don't know. But he was over when he debuted. And, I mean, they put him over Kurt Angle, who that was his first loss. Yeah, I remember people, you know, casual fans that lived near me. They're like, you know, what's the number 13 thing on WWF TV? I'm like, oh, Taz is coming in. And a couple of them were like, oh, who's that? So, I mean, it's, you know, it was niche entertainment and I enjoyed it while it was good. Les Tactics asked, do you think Terry Funk could have been featured at this point in his career in WCW or WWF? Or did he gain relevance through ECW in North America uh, later in the 90s? What do you think? No, I think, well, two things on that. Number one, if you look at the main event scene in the WWF and WCW, I don't think there was any room for Terry Funk in there. And that's no disrespect to Terry Funk. It's just, look at WCW. Look at all of the guys at the top of the card. You had Hogan and Savage and Piper and Hall and Nash, and you just go down the list. And if you look at the WWF, they were kind of going, they were starting to go with younger guys, and they were starting to build up stars of their own. So I just don't think they would have had a place for him at the top of the card. I think he would have gotten over, Terry Funk can get over anywhere he goes. But I don't think they would have featured him at the top of the card. But I think number two, and I think maybe even a little more importantly than that, like I was saying earlier, you have to present him a certain way. If you just throw him out there, hey, here's Terry Funk, I don't think it's going to work. I think you have to be able to tell that story that Paul Heyman and Terry Funk and the rest of the ECW crew were able to tell. I just don't see Vince McMahon or Eric Bischoff telling that story. And I think that's the way to make it work. And I just don't see him doing it. So my answer is no. I think he was in the right place at the right time. I, I agree. I mean, I remember when Terry Funk was in WCW in 1994. I mean, he was just a complete, uh, I mean, it was like he didn't exist. He was on TV every now and then, but they were not using him at all. The, he was not featured. And this is before they had guys like uh, Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, et cetera. Exactly. And this was 94. So this was a few years earlier. You know, he's not getting any younger. I just I don't see them. I don't see either promotion using him the way ECW was able to. No, WWF brought him in like 98, 99, and they gave him a role as Chainsaw Charlie. But, you know, that that's really an a major league setting that's really all a mid-50s Terry Funk has to offer and again I'm not saying that disrespectfully towards Terry Funk you know I just don't think you can feature a guy in his mid-50s you know like the WWF is doing now with Goldberg anyway they shouldn't be doing it in my opinion Rob Nelson asked did you think not having Tommy Dreamer wrestle hurt the show Nicholas what do you think no not at all I think there are three ECW guys that you have to have on the card or else the fans will feel shortchanged. Rob Van Dam, number one, Sabu, number two, and Taz, number three. You have to have those three guys wrestling on the card. As far as Tommy Dreamer is concerned, I don't think his actual wrestling was ever must-see TV. I think the people that were fans of Tommy Dreamer, and I was never a big Tommy Dreamer fan, but the people that were big fans of him, I think it was more the character than the actual wrestling ability. You know, he wasn't Dean Malenko in the ring. I actually liked his role on the show. I don't think he necessarily pulled it off all that great, but I kind of like the idea of he was just there to put his mentor over, you know, and he was just kind of a, a prop for Terry Funk. I was fine with that. Yeah, and, and Matt Crowder asked the question, or it should be Rob Nelson asked the question. Um, I'm not even trying to be like a smartass when I say this. I mean, I didn't even, I didn't, when he asked the question, I was like, oh, yeah. Tommy Dreamer didn't wrestle. So I thought little of it. And I agree with you, Nicholas, that his role on the show was really good as someone who was in the booth, not saying much, but watching Terry Funk take a beating and then warding off Big Dick Dudley at the end. So I, I thought they used him really well. Agreed. All right. Matt Crowder. Your thoughts of ECW overall in 1991 after the glory period of the promotion and were you still a fan or did they jump the shark? Uh, I've already answered this. I thought this was the night they jumped the shark. A whole lot of promotions have that special night. The WWF did it in 2001 with WrestleMania X7. Uh, World Class did it in 1985 when Gino Hernandez and Chris Adams got their head shaved. WCW probably did it with the finger poke of doom. And yeah, this is the night, in my opinion, ECW jumped the shark completely. You know, and again, my, my, my experience as uh, someone that watched ECW was a little different in that I didn't watch it from the beginning. So I kind of watched it all hodgepodge all over the place. But 
I did feel like there was a lot of kind of cheesy stuff they did after that, stuff that wasn't quite as good. Maybe they lost their edge a little bit from some of the stuff they did earlier. You know, the, the Tommy Dreamer and Raven feud, as I recall. That was, I'm sorry, the, the uh, Sandman and Raven feud. That was all before this, as I recall. And I thought that was really, really well done. Yeah, that was a, an absolutely crazy feud where uh, Raven hooks up with uh, Sandman's ex, and he's got Sandman's a young son, who I think was like eight years old, dressing up like Raven. That was great. Yeah, that was great. I, I thought that was – and I think they caught a lot of flack for that as well, for involving his kid and his ex-wife or whoever. But I don't know. I, I thought it was a good angle. The kid was having fun. I don't see what anyone was complaining about. Tony Caro asked, did the production values hurt future pay-per-view potential? What do you think, Nicholas? Well, I can't imagine that the people that put it on pay-per-view didn't see the product beforehand. I think the production values were part and parcel of ECW. I'm going to make a comparison to the, and I know we talked a little earlier about grunge music. I'll make a comparison to the Nirvana Smells Like Teen Spirit music video. Do you remember that video? I sure do. The zombie okay, take out cheerleaders. Yes, yes. Take that music video. Now turn up the lights, get rid of that kind of smoky, hazy effect, shoot it in a nicer school, get the band some better clothes that didn't look like they were dragged from the bottom of their hamper, get some better-looking cheerleaders, give them a better choreographed dance routine. You start doing too much of that, and pretty quickly it's not Nirvana anymore. And I think same with ECW. It kind of gave them like a, almost a renegade, uh, fly-by-night you know, appeal to it. We're different than the other two. And this will sound like a very strange name to bring up on an ECW podcast, but Eric Bischoff, in his book, he famously said, you know, when he was starting Monday Nitro, he realized, I can be better than Vince, which is impossible at what he does. I can be worse than Vince, which is very likely, or I can be different. And they're not going to out WWF the WWF. They can definitely be worse in trying to attempt to do the same thing, or they can be different. And... You know, say what you will for Vince McMahon, his production values have always been top-notch. And ECW's wasn't. And I think it actually added to their appeal. You know, it was an imperfect product. And more importantly, it wasn't striving to be perfect. And I think that made it better. I agree with you. I think that it gave the the production and the arena gave ECW a, a very different look. Uh, it wasn't a big arena, but... It was a very enthusiastic crowd, and the place was full. So I don't, I don't think it hurt. As a matter of fact, I know that their next pay-per-view was more widely available than this one. So, I mean, and that was a big part of what Paulie Dangerously was, was trying to accomplish. It's like, okay, let's get through this one, have a good show, and have more carriers carry this my next pay-per-view, which is what happened. Um, you know, you mentioned Eric Bischoff. I'm not anyone who listens to this podcast knows I'm not someone who just automatically dislikes Eric Bischoff for for whatever reason. I read his book. I thought his book was really good, and I, I enjoyed his vision of wrestling, like that he wasn't going to out Vince Vince McMahon. He was going to do something different, and he saw you know wrestling as a television product as opposed to a a touring company. And I thought I always thought that was really smart, but. Anyway, Greg Klein asks, was the three-way dance idea a good one or not? What do you think, Nicholas? Absolutely, for several reasons. And I'm normally not a fan of three-way dances. You know, it's especially at the beginning of the match when they first lock up because, okay, you have three people, two of them lock up, and the other guy just kind of stands there with his, you know, thumb up his ass. Um, Normally, I'm not a fan of that, but I think in this case, it worked out great because you have to look at the three people involved. One was, again, you know, a 53-year-old guy that had seen better days, and you kind of need to mask some of that. The other, the Sandman, was a guy that, again, was fantastic at everything in the wrestling business other than the actual wrestling. So nobody wants to see that guy in a 20-minute match either. You know, I thought Stevie Richards was, you know, the probably the best athlete slash at that point I don't want to say worker, but let's just say athlete slash wrestler of the three. But I think in that case, it helped mask the weaknesses. I agree. And plus, you know, you have that a kind of a unique match. Um, they did the first three-way dance with Shane Douglas, Terry Funk, and Sabu in 94. And when the match first happened, I heard about it. And everyone's like, oh, my God, it's match of the year. It might be match of the decade, five stars. And then I saw it. 
And when it, when it first came out, I'm like, yeah, okay, this is not a five-star match. It's a good match, and it does what it's supposed to do. And the post-match stuff was fantastic with Shane Douglas, Paulie Dangerously, and Terry Funk. But, you know, it, it's not a five-star match. And then I hear other people saying, oh, my God, that match was terrible. Like, people were all over the place with the first three-way dance. I'm kind of in the middle. And I thought they made it work here, and I thought they made the match come across as a, a special match. Also, I think, you know, I was mentioning earlier, the three people that you need to have wrestle on the card are Rob Van Dam, Taz, and Sabu. But I think you need to have Tommy Dreamer somewhere on the card. I think you need to have the Sandman somewhere on the card. Um, I think this is just a great way to feature him. You need to have that entrance. I mean, that is iconic. The enter Salmon entrance, smoking the cigarette, drinking the beers, the whole works. I think you need to have that on the card, and this was a great way to feature it. I, I I agree. The one thing I think you also need to have Shane Douglas on the card. He's yeah. like the fourth guy I think you, you need to have. But Nicholas, it has been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for appearing on Stick to Wrestling. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure and uh, hope to do it again sometime. We certainly will. Um, so I want to thank everyone for listening. Show number 200 is next week. I want to thank Brian Last and Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network for giving me this forum. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all of the great work he does producing this show. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day. 